This is the Bell Books and Stories podcast with me, Kay Hutchison. Welcome, you're listening to the Bell Media Podcast. This is Kay Hutchison with Books and Stories, where I take a look at some great books and the stories behind the books. This podcast is being remotely recorded due to the coronavirus pandemic, so please forgive any minor sound issues and background noises we may encounter along the way. In this episode, Richard is speaking to award-winning wildlife photographer and filmmaker Sue Flood about her incredible book on emperor penguins. It's filled with beautiful photography and has a foreword by Michael Palin. Richard himself has had a lifelong interest in wildlife and conservation and over the course of many years has travelled far and wide to see animals in their natural habitat, including mountain gorillas in Rwanda, humpback whales in Alaska. He trekked in China in search of pandas, rhino in Swaziland and walrus in Russia's Chukotka Peninsula. As an author, Richard has written two children's book series, including his successful Tigeropolis books about a family of vegetarian tigers running their own reserve. Richard is also a non-exec director of specialist travel company Steps Travel. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome, Sue. Thank you very much. So, uh, firstly, just to help the listeners, Sue, I think I should probably just mention some of the many awards that you've won. I think you've won International Conservation Photographer of the Year, a category winner in the Travel Photographer of the Year Awards, and also the International Garden Photographer of the Year Awards. And you're also a Royal Photographic Society Silver Medal winner. Uh, yes, I don't want to sound big-headed about it, but it's lovely to be recognised for your work and uh, yeah, great to be recognised in, in some prestigious competitions. So you've also uh, got a particular interest in colder places and perhaps really why we're talking today. You've published two beautiful books about the Arctic and Antarctic and the most recent is entitled Emperor the Perfect Penguin. It includes some stunning photographs of emperor penguins taken in all sorts of conditions from brilliant sun to ferocious blizzard well thank you oh yeah i i absolutely love working in the arctic and antarctic uh i saw a film set there years ago um and i used to avidly watch nature documentaries when i was a kid and and still do of course but it was during working at the bbc natural history unit on the blue planet series that i got my first chance to go to the polar regions, and I was absolutely hooked. So I've spent a lot of time in both the Arctic and the Antarctic in the last 20 years, and uh, it's an addictive place to spend time, that's for sure. What really got you interested in wildlife in the first place? I mean, I think that most of us kind of had some sort of childhood idea that we could do this, or in terms of wildlife photography you know yes we could just take that perfect shot too if only with the right equipment (laughs) i think most of us find that fairly quickly there's a lot more to it uh, than, than that i mean i know that you grew up in the country in north wales but your father he was in the merchant navy did that kind of influence your idea of kind of travel and you know going to see places yeah absolutely my dad did definitely influence me um I mean 
I remember when I was a little girl and my mum saying, now, when you grow up, your job is to look after your husband. And even when I was about eight years old, I thought that sounded a really terrible idea. Sorry, mum. Whereas my dad was telling me all these fascinating stories about when I was in Rangoon or when I was in Shanghai. And he has this big old camphor wood chest. And this was like a treasure chest to me. And I'd open up the lid and I can smell it now, this lovely camphor wood. And it was packed with things like kimonos from Japan, headhunters swords from Borneo, these woven hats from Burma. And to be allowed to go through this treasure chest when I was a kid and and play very carefully with these things, it, it was just fantastic. And so that got me inspired to go and see these things for myself. And my parents were avid watchers of BBC documentaries. And of course, like nearly everybody in the country, I would tune in and see these incredible adventures with David Attenborough, whether it was rolling around the forest floor in Rwanda with mountain gorillas, or swimming with humpback whales, or out in the Antarctic. And To get to do these things myself is uh, just amazing, having been inspired by him. Does that mean that you actually set out with that as a real ambition? Or was it just that somehow over the years, having that in the back of your mind, things kind of opened up that gradually moved you towards that? Well, when I was at school, I was about 15 and I was asked by one of the teachers, what did I want to do when I left school? And I said, I want to make wildlife films with David Attenborough. Now, you know, it was a bit like saying I'd like to be an astronaut or, or where was this exactly that you were at school? Um, I was at school, well, I was at primary school in North Wales at a place called Eulow Green and had a fantastic head teacher there called Vincent Tybull. And then I went to senior school in Chester at the Queen's School, Chester, both great schools. And uh, so at the Queen's School, I said, I want to make wildlife films with David Attenborough, but was told, well, no one gets to do that. How about domestic science? So uh, luckily for the world of cookery, I decided to ignore that advice. And um, yeah, I was always interested in wildlife. I was interested in seeing the world. And it just seemed like the absolute dream job, which indeed it is. So again, did you go and volunteer at I don't know, Chester Zoo or... Um, I have done a lot with Chester Zoo subsequently, but at the time, um, I didn't really know how to go about these things. I studied biology, and I thought I'd like to work with animals in some way and and have this sort of dream that did seem a rather distant one of, as I say, working with David Attenborough. But I decided to try and study zoology at university, and I started writing to the Natural History Unit at the BBC, the part of the BBC which makes all their wildlife films. And um, after graduating, um, I went and did some other work that I felt would help get my foot in the door. So, for example, I went and volunteered at a place called Bermuda Biological Station, where I was assistant to the scientists there. And I ended up spending eight months, uh, which was unpaid. Uh, So I got my food and my board, but it was fantastic experience. So I was uh, diving on shipwrecks. I was working with teams in the lab. I was going out to sea. I was uh, 
doing more diving qualifications. So it was it was really brilliant experience. You can see that uh, there's definitely a, a draw there that's just pushing you towards the career that you finally find yourself in. But uh, it's obviously quite a long time it takes you to then move into something like the BBC. So how did that then come about? I'd studied zoology at Durham University. And when I was at Durham, there was an advert placed for Operation Rally, if you remember that. And Operation Rally was this fantastic initiative uh, started by uh, Colonel, Colonel Blashford Snell. Yes, that's it. John Blashford Snell, that's right. Um, John and Prince Charles had come up with this idea of getting young people in to do conservation and community work and basically character building stuff that they may not get a chance to do otherwise. And a friend had seen this advert and said, let's apply. And I said, oh, God, you'll never get onto that. Anyway, we did apply. And after a rather demanding experience of applying and going on to all these selection weekends and so on, I was incredibly fortunate to be selected. And I have to say it changed my life. Uh, I was selected and straight after graduation, I went out and worked for the Queens and National Parks and Wildlife Service in Australia. And it, as I say, it really did change my life. I got to do all sorts of things that I never dreamt I would get to do. Um, Diving on the barrier reef, whitewater rafting through the rainforest, caving in these limestone cave systems. And I think it definitely gave me the confidence to at least try to follow this dream of working with David Attenborough, because if I didn't try, then, you know, I'd be very disappointed with myself. But hey, if I did try and fail, then at least I'd given it a go. Yeah, right. So it it sounds as though that one of the key things in all this is just kind of determination to give it a go, to actually really kind of push forward and say, yeah, I can do that. Yeah, absolutely. It is. It's something that's stood me in good stead a lot. But uh, certainly Operation Rally, that did, that changed my life, uh, no doubt about it. So you, you worked for the BBC for quite a while. But I mean, obviously, as a researcher, that kind of covers all sorts of things. But, you know, in terms of like, filming, was that something you did right away or did it take a while to move into that? Um, that took a while. So the, so the first thing was, yes, I should say, working as a researcher. And my lucky break was getting to be the researcher on Wildlife on One, uh, the series presented by David Attenborough. So can you imagine how unbelievably exciting that was after wanting to do this since I was a kid and then suddenly you end up working with him and uh, it was just absolutely brilliant so my job as researcher I I was there to you know find out facts uh, set up filming trips are we going to the right place at the right time how close can you get what's the safest way to do this how often does this particular behavior happen that sort of thing and uh, I mean I have to say I I love doing the research and I also love the logistics of setting things up so I, I did the research job for about a year on Wildlife on One. And then my big break was when I heard about a series with the working title Oceans. And one of the cameramen, um, Doug, he said uh, this series was coming up and that I should apply to try and get a job on it. I got a lot of dive experience. I'd also worked on an underwater series at another company. And I applied and got the job. And this series oceans was what became the blue planet and uh, as i said at the time and i still think i said this is better than winning the lottery 
So I worked on that series for five years from start to finish, from um, setting up trips, developing the scripts, going out in the field, working, um, doing some of the filming, helping write scripts, being in the cutting room. It was absolutely brilliant. But then you decided to concentrate more on your own photography. So how did that come about? Uh, That's right. It was quite a leap, you can imagine. I mean, I'd always been interested in photography. Uh, My father and my grandfather were keen photographers. And I'd bought myself a camera when I was in the sixth form, when I was always taking my camera around places with me. But it was when I was at the BBC and when I was in the field getting opportunities to see and photograph things that I never dreamt I'd get to see. And I was fortunate to photograph something that hadn't been photographed before. uh, And that led to my first article for BBC Wildlife magazine of killer whales hunting grey whales in California. And then another Blue Planet shoot where polar bears were hunting beluga whales up in the high Arctic. So seeing my photographs published for the first time really inspired me with my photography. And then shortly after that, uh, one of my shots of a great white shark ended up on the cover of a National Geographic magazine. And that was a turning point for me because I thought, you know what, I'm going to give it a go to try and make it as a professional photographer. And I'd been with the BBC about 11 years now. So I'd fulfilled this dream of working with David Attenborough and I got to work on these wonderful kind of blue chip natural history series, the Blue Planet and Planet Earth. And I really wanted to kind of end on a high, if you like. So after Planet Earth, I decided I would try and make a go of my photography. And in terms of your books about the uh, penguins, was that always uh, going to be what you were going to concentrate on or was there other things? Um, No, the books came about as a bit of surprise, really. I was very lucky. Uh, Canon cameras approached me and asked me if I would like to have a solo exhibition at the Getty Gallery, which was uh, completely out of the blue and, and, yeah, a lovely surprise. That was in 2011. So they kindly sponsored this exhibition in the Getty Gallery. And I thought, well, you know what? It would be great to have a book to go with that. And this exhibition was called Cold Places, which consisted of my favourite images from working in the Arctic and Antarctic, part of which consisted of shots of emperor penguins, which I always say are the most photogenic thing I've ever seen, with the possible exception of George Clooney. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the thing with Cold Places is that, first of all, that everything's white. So surely for a photographer, it's, you know, it's not a very interesting place, the Arctic or the Antarctic. Oh, quite the opposite. It's definitely not white. That's a a misconception, if you like. I mean, you, you can stand there and see these icebergs that are just different shades of intense blue or greens or just absolutely spectacular colours. And it's anything but boring. There's nowhere better to be than the Antarctic. I've been over 50 times. And if someone said to me, you have to stop traveling tomorrow, but you're allowed one more trip before you stop traveling, uh, I would go to the Antarctic. 
you realize, of course, you've just answered the question I was going to ask you right at the end. (laughs) (laughs) I've actually obviously been with you on a trip to the Arctic. Well, it was actually really around Svalbard. But one of the things there that I was very aware of was this whole thing about how the light changes, how, you know, that when you see ice in different conditions and things like that, you get all these different colours and subtleties of things. And it's, it is a very interesting area. Is it is it challenging for a photographer to actually photograph in these sort of conditions? Um, it is challenging to photograph in cold climates, for sure. But then, you know, every environment has its own challenges. I don't enjoy working in hot, humid places, though I have done. But I absolutely love the challenge of working in the Arctic and Antarctic. As you say, just subtleties of light, um, the fantastic wildlife. And of course, the Arctic and the Antarctic are extremely different. I mean, in the Arctic, you've got land predators in the form of polar bears and Arctic foxes and so on, which you don't have, of course, in the Antarctic. But yeah, two incredibly different habitats. You've got an ocean surrounded by land in the Arctic. You've got a continent surrounded by ocean in the Antarctic. Very, very different, but but just equally spectacular. So you you said that you like cold places, but you know how cold do you actually go down to? And you know, is there a sort of temperature where you turn around and say, "Well, I'm actually going to just stay inside, thank you very much." <laughs> well, uh, yes. Sometimes you're actually filming in the cold precisely because it's cold. Uh, so, for example, one series uh, I was asked to work on for the BBC called Extreme Environments we had to take the presenter out to sleep in minus 40 centigrade. And uh, that's cold. I was in a tent with a couple of guys, uh, my friend Dave on one side and my friend Eliak, an Inuit guide, on the other. And I remember waking up in my sleeping bag and there was a thin layer of ice over the front of my sleeping bag where my breath had frozen in the night. So um, that is definitely a challenge. However, not the coldest I've ever been, uh, which was last year when I was working in Siberia. And I was working with the Nenets reindeer herders in the Yamal Peninsula in Siberia, which was absolutely fantastic, I have to say. Really fascinating Uh, hard work, but just what a thrill. And we were coming back from their camp into this uh, little town in Siberia, and we were traveling along in a sledge. And I thought, God, this is cold. I was wearing reindeer skin clothing, thinking, I'm actually feeling a bit chilly. And I said to the guide, how cold do you think it is, Ed? And he said, "Mm, about minus 30. And I said, oh, God, it's colder than that. Anyway, we arrived in the town to discover it was minus 48 centigrade and I'd been um, sat in this open sledge, admittedly with my balaclava and my goggles on. But yeah, my feet and my hands were a little bit chilly after that, that's for sure. And the photographs that you got, were they uh, ones that you're going to publish? or? Ah, well, yes, thank you. So a chance to blow my trumpet again, but I was, I was lucky to have uh, one of those images selected for uh, a competition, the Earth Photo Competition at the Royal Geographical Society last year. So uh, the Northern Lights over the Nenets camp and also uh, one of the shots of the women sort of tending the fire inside the tent. So, uh, yeah, a tricky photography, I have to say, but a really wonderful experience. 
so back to Emperor Penguins then. So your book, Emperor the Perfect Penguin, I have to say it's a beautiful book. Uh, it's actually a book I bought to give as a present to someone. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> uh, so first of all, Emperor Penguins, I think you've said before that you think they're fantastic creatures, but why exactly do you think that they're so interesting and photographic as well? For me, emperors really are the perfect penguin because they're so incredibly photogenic. They live in these extreme environments and it's just extraordinary when you see this bird that it can cope with the conditions it's living in. It can manage temperatures down to minus 50, minus 60, huddling together in the winter as the males are looking after the solo egg. They can travel up to 150 kilometres to go off looking for food for their chick. The male can lose half its body weight during incubation. You know, A big, healthy adult would be about 1.2, 1.3 metres tall. Oh, that's, that's big. Yeah. It, absolutely. Um, and even up to 45 kilos. And they can lose half that body weight while they're incubating the egg. They're just extraordinary animals. They lavish all this effort and attention on this single chick. And uh, they really are ridiculously appealing looking animals. Um, to be able to survive out there on the sea ice during the winter, it's an extraordinary animal. So to go and photograph them, that's presumably not an easy thing to do. It is not an easy thing to do. Uh, I've been fortunate to do that about 10 times now. And uh, yeah, it's a wonderful experience. Uh, so you can either go via icebreaker, not that there are many companies who do this, where you travel down to the sea ice and the most accessible colony is uh, one called Snow Hill Island in the Weddell Sea. You can also fly in and camp, uh, which is more expensive, more difficult, but absolutely wonderful. And I was fortunate to be asked to join the team where I was working as the Emperor Penguin person at the camp for a number of weeks a couple of years ago. And uh, I'm hoping to return there maybe in two or three years and, and take a group of people. It's wonderful to be camped near the colony and be able to spend literally 24 hours a day if you want to uh, out with the penguins and, and see them as they go about their business, feeding the chick, leaving the chick while they go out to feed at sea, watching the chicks in the creche and all the different interactions. And, you know, what an amazing privilege. So you've obviously got a great enthusiasm for them. Uh, how do you uh, translate that into pitching that to a publisher? With the Penguin book, I've been asked a number of times by people, why don't I do a book about penguins? And I went to the London Book Fair with a friend of mine, Simon Bishop, who's a fantastic book designer who'd done many, many books um, for the BBC and others um, and was involved with Wildlife Photographer of the Year and so on. And um, I'd asked Simon if he would do the design. So he and I went to the book fair together and had pitched this to a number of different people. We both particularly liked this one company, um, ACC Art Books, and that's who I decided to go with. So, uh, yeah, it was a lovely experience. 
it was a photo-led book with the behind-the-scenes stories of my experiences when I was photographing the penguins. That book, actually, I see has a foreword by Michael Palin. Uh, well, that's quite a recommendation. How did that come about? Oh, well, yes, how lucky. Um, and actually, today, uh, the day we're recording this is Michael's birthday. So happy birthday, Michael. Um, I was very lucky to be asked to join a trip with some mutual friends. Uh, eight of us went to the Antarctic, and Michael was one of the eight. We actually had met at an event in Buckingham Palace uh, a few years before. As, as you do. Yes. <laughs> Not a phrase I'd often uh, use, but I was invited to this event for adventurers and explorers at Buckingham Palace. And wow, what an amazing evening that was. As a result, I think, of working on the Cold Places book, it was just great. There were the, you know, David Attenborough and John Blashford Snell and Michael Palin and Alan MacArthur and Reinhold Messner and all these extraordinary people uh, and me wandering around thinking, what on earth am I doing here? <laughs> and um, anyway, I'd uh, met Michael there for the first time, but a, a mutual friend very kindly invited me along on this trip to the Antarctic. So we were fortunate to spend a couple of weeks together. And of course, he is just absolutely brilliant company. When it came to doing the book, I thought it'd be lovely to have someone who's actually seen me at work in the Antarctic to write the foreword. So he, as he said, he would be delighted to issue some words of slavish devotion. <laughs> oh, well, that's excellent. I mean, I have to say as well that Sue is a great teacher. She's very patient with people of uh, all levels of ability, although her only advice to me was, you need to clean your camera. <laughs> Uh, but in terms of uh, with uh, Michael, is there anything you can tell us about his photographic technique? Uh, well, about his photographic technique, he's uh, he's a good observer, both of, of people and things. And I think often it's not just about taking the photograph, but as you've probably heard me say, Richard, putting the camera down and enjoying the moment. Also, actually, not his particular technique of photography, but his technique for being photographed. He's obviously very comfortable in front of a lens from his decades of being in front of the camera. So that was great for me because I was making a, a book of our trip, a photography book for all the people who were on the trip. And uh, yeah, it was two of the best weeks I've ever had in my life. So it was yeah, really special. Uh, the, the other thing I suppose I should talk about with your penguins is that you've also uh, been involved in producing stamps, is that right? Yeah, I have. That was lovely. And it was a, an absolute thrill to go into the Penguin Post Office earlier this year. I was there in February and see my stamps on sale. So um, I supplied some photos for consideration for a first day cover of penguins. And 11 of the 12 images selected were my penguin photos for the penguins found in the British Antarctic territories. That's emperors, kings, chinstraps, adelies, gentoos and macaronis. And so a first day cover and set of stamps was produced of penguins. Uh, they'd also done a series on icebergs and uh, one on landscape. So it's really lovely to see my images 
end up as stamps. Uh, yeah. Uh, the, the, the post office is actually at an old British Antarctic survey base, I think, is that right? That's right, Port Lockroy, and uh, that's yeah, one of the old British bases, that's correct. And uh, so they have a small post office there, so you can buy these stamps and envelopes and post them out from there. So I have a number of first day covers which I purchased, which have been franked with the uh, Port Lockroy stamp, which uh, is a thrill. And presumably it takes about three months before they uh, <laughs> actually get delivered. Yes, but they do get delivered. So obviously we've talked a lot about the Arctic Antarctic, uh, but are there other animals that you're really interested in photographing? As you know, my interest to some extent is also the fact that I do these children's books about tigers. Yes. Have you ever photographed tigers? Is that something you'd like? Well... I definitely am off to photograph tigers. I was actually due to be there this March, uh, and unfortunately uh, COVID-19 put a uh, damper on that. However, I'm going in February 2021 for Steps Travel, and I'm leading a small group of six people to go and photograph tigers in Bandagar National Park. So I'm really looking forward to that, and that's going to be a regular trip that I do. Um, uh, that's Banthamgar, did you see? Yes, that's right. Well, of course, Banthamgar is the park that inspired my Tigeropolis series. Absolutely. And the tiger that actually inspired me is the sister of the tiger that was followed in the Dynasty series. Oh, wonderful. Well, I shall keep my eyes peeled. I'm really, really looking forward to it. And it's amazing, really, that I haven't been to photograph tigers yet, but um it's funny, I always say it's a little bit like being typecast as an actor. You know, if you do a lot of cold and or underwater things, then you tend to get asked to do those a lot. But I am really looking forward to going to India and working there. And uh, I, I like the idea of typecast as a photographer. But I can see, obviously, it makes <laughs> sense, really, isn't it? That you, if people are wanting photographs, they're likely to turn around and say, well, who do we know that can do this? Yes. Uh, yeah, so therefore, they, well, you're going to be asked again. It's true. It's true. But I, I think that, you know, one of the things I really love doing is going to different environments and putting those, I guess, those skills, whether you're in a jungle or a desert or the African savannah or the British Columbian rainforest, Great Bear rainforest, or the polar regions, it's just being able to adapt to get the best out of the environment that you're in and help people enjoy it. Uh, whether they're a really keen photographer, whether they're someone who's simply got an iPhone. And sometimes, you know, the people who are traveling with me don't even have a camera. They might have pen and paper. They may be painting the scene. They may just keep a diary. So it's lovely and it keeps you on your toes um, being with people in these different habitats. Something I am doing uh, during the coronavirus crisis, I'm posting a daily picture online, which I'm calling Sue's Daily Dose of Nature. It's been shown that simply looking at images of wildlife and nature helps people de-stress. And uh, on Facebook, on Instagram and on Twitter, do follow me there, Sue Flood Photography or Sue Flood Photos, and uh, hopefully get to de-stress with some nice wildlife images. You mentioned the whole uh, issue too with COVID-19 and how that's interrupted things quite a bit. And it's also, of course, given us a bit of time for reflection, I suppose, as well. Do you think that that's going to change how people travel going into the future? 
I personally think it is going to change how people travel. And I think that's no bad thing, frankly. I think that, of course, many, many people, most people have been impacted financially by the COVID-19 crisis, as, as well as in other ways. But I think that it's also made lots of people realise that they can certainly get by on a lot less. They don't need as much stuff, shall we say. Um, you can perhaps be more reflective and thoughtful and appreciative of things that you took for granted before. I mean, being able to travel, to spend time with friends, spend time in the wilderness, to get on a plane, which is a luxury, but it's obviously been good for the planet in some ways to not be traveling as much. Um, but of course, it's had absolutely devastating consequences for communities and for people around the globe. My books, to some extent, are talking about how well-managed tourism can be beneficial for wildlife because it kind of gives a, I don't know, a sort of symbiotic relationship between locals and the wildlife. And Absolutely. But there is this problem of these sort of trade-offs and things that I don't know if you're aware, but a couple of years ago, for instance, India tried to ban tourism entirely. Yes. And I, I think that, you know, I agree with you. I think that well-managed tourism has a huge role to play well-managed being the operative phrase. Um, for example, you know, I, one of the places I go a lot, uh, I go every year and have been going for about 10 years, is the South Luangwa Valley in Zambia. It is one of the world's absolute wildlife hotspots and there's a, a brilliant lodge there called Mafue Lodge. And it is just fantastic for wildlife at all times of the year. But the lodge has a wonderful relationship with the local community. It ploughs back money from tourism into clean water initiatives, into education, into feeding the local school children. Uh, it puts money so that um, anti-poaching teams are operating in the park and so on. So it's a really wonderful community feeling that the lodge and other lodges have developed in that area to make sure that everybody benefits. So I think that those are the sort of relationships that need to flourish. Well, that sounds like that's a great place to close. So thank you for being my guest today. It's been a real pleasure hearing your stories. And just a reminder to everybody that you know Sue's books, It's Cold Places and Emperor, The Perfect Penguin, are both available from bookstores and on Amazon. You can also see some of her photography on her website. That's www.sueflood.com. And also, as she mentioned, uh, she also sometimes leads trips for, amongst others, the company that I'm involved with. I'm a non-exec director of Steps Travel. That's www.stepstravel.com. And as she was saying, her trips are not just aimed at photographers, but are really suitable for anybody with an interest in nature and wildlife. And trust me, you know, as you've heard today, her enthusiasm just bubbles over and it kind of draws you into the whole thing. So, you know, she's a great guide to have. Uh, and as for my own Tigeropolis, well, you can find them in bookstores and Amazon and also in www.scotlandbymail.com. So thank you for listening to Books and Stories. The podcast was produced by Jerry O'Reardon. I'm Richard Dijkstra, so hope you'll join us next time. Bye for now. <laughs>